Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Lounge wear? Underwear? Those are two questions you might ask if you didn't realise that at BritishBoxers.com the answers are lounge here and under here. Um, That is that they sell super comfy loungewear and underwear made of luxury fabric. Not that they're inviting you to lounge at theirs or underneath theirs, which would be a bit weird and creepy. You name something comfy to wear. Go on, anything. No, not that. No, they don't do trousers filled with marshmallows and that wouldn't be very nice in the summer. Pyjamas, dressing gowns, hoodies, pants. Yeah, all of them. And British boxers make them superbly too while being part of the Conscious Advertising Network, paying their staff properly like, you know, everyone should and are all nice to the planet too. Also like, well, everyone should. What I'm saying is they're properly nice people who make great underwear under there, which isn't under anything, I don't think. I've not visited, but I'm almost certain they have a fact rather than underground lair. If you go to british-boxers.com and buy nice things, then at the checkout use the promo code PARPOLBRO15 and you'll get a nice 15% off your order and then you can lounge here, there or anywhere you blooming well like. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that fully believes in easing restrictions as soon as possible, but only when it comes to trousers. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week as Prime Minister and missing evolutionary link between a hay bale and gastroenteritis, Boris Johnson says he is confident that this will be the last extension. I ask, does he mean in terms of Covid restrictions or just refurbishments to the number 10 flat? Yes, the so-called overly optimistic, yeah, we all knew it, Freedom Day has, of course, been delayed again because, sadly, there's still no escape from this absolute shit show of a government, despite all the experts' advice on it. Four more weeks of restrictions is not going backwards, you understand, which, if true, would make it the only thing Johnson's government have done that isn't. It's also not the government going back on their word, as that would mean their word had any validity in the first place. Infection rates of the Delta variant are rising, or as the lad news channels call it, the nasty variant because using the Greek alphabet is too European for them or something. And in the Northwest, cases have risen by 61%. So what better way to counteract all of that than by keeping things exactly as they are, but you know, not more so. Well, except for weddings, you can now have as many people as possible. I mean, surely COVID can't be such a grouch as to ruin people's special days, right? That's totally how germs work. Hey, at least all the happy couples will know what their guests will be getting them. 
Johnson said that we're going to have to live with the virus, even though it will continue to be harmful, which is probably a similar sentence to what he said at his wedding vows just weeks before. So this means nightclubs, theatres and much of the hospitality industry can't open up as they'd hoped, even though Lord and escapee from Dr Moreau's Island, Andrew Lloyd Webber, has insisted that he's going to start his West End theatre shows again on June the 21st regardless. And do you know what? I say go for it, Andrew, as really nothing is going to put people off doing crimes, quite like knowing they could end up in a prison where old Toadie is going to try and direct them in a shit-awful musical. July the 19th is the new Freedom Day, even though Johnson during the press conference said July 29th, as though even he hasn't got any faith in himself anymore. And he insisted that that date, the 29th, no, the 19th, the 19th, the 29th, one of them, whenever, that is the terminus date. You know, much like June the 21st was, or any of the ones before that. And wasn't he meant to die in a ditch at some point? So that's four more weeks, or roughly the same amount of time that he didn't bother to close travel to or from India by. And it's odd that any of us pretended this wasn't going to happen, and haven't just binned all our calendars till 2023 at this point. Every single one of Johnson's children that he's promised, oh, I'll definitely attend your birthday party this year, must be pissing themselves laughing at everyone who thought 21st of June would go ahead as planned. It is tricky, though, because when the people who are supposed to be in charge don't seem to be aware, yes, even though we know there are more intelligent picnic hampers out there than most of the cabinet, then you can't help but feel that perhaps it's you who's wrong for being able to read things or understand when science people say sentences. The Prime Minister waited until the G7 summit was over and all the leaders had gone home before he announced the inevitable, because the last thing you want is all the people who you've just agreed must work together to end the pandemic know that at home you keep handing Covid a free travel card and telling it to seal the sites. Plus it would have really ruined their overcrowded beach barbecue, but I guess it would have been hard for all those world leaders to know if they were standing by a slowly roasting pig or the Prime Minister on a very hot day. Number 10 said numbers at the barbecue were below 30, but pictures show they weren't, unless, of course, they were only counting those who aren't completely dead inside. Hey, we've all done it, haven't we? You know, had guests round, and rather than clean up properly, we've just shoved all our crap into the one room we hope no one goes in, only to find halfway through someone gets the wrong door for the bathroom and finds your collection of creepy stuffed lizards, blow-up dolls of famous philosophers, and an unnecessary amount of toothpaste. Or is that just me? Anyway, because he's like all of us normal folks, just like us, just like one of the people, Boris Johnson could have held the G7 summit in, say, the brand new lorry park in Kent, allowing world leaders to inhale all the tasty fumes brought on by his successful Brexit plans, or perhaps one of the places in Yorkshire hardest hit by flooding in the past few years and still haven't been able to repair everything, or a block of flats where the cladding is still a fire hazard and residents can't afford to remove it, and he could have treated his guests to the thrill of being terrified about their survival during the trip and in awe of the fact his party still somehow gets votes. But instead, Johnson went for the safer option and had the location as a fancy beach resort in Cornwall, one that is careful to make sure guests never ever see that the region is one of the poorest in Britain in case it puts them off their baked brie on the beach. Baked brie, that is, that's probably sat in a truck in Ashford for six months, so you see it would have been more beneficial to everyone if Johnson had just got them a teepee in the lorry park after all. The G7 are the leaders of the world's richest countries, apart from the rich countries they don't like and any that they don't understand. And it's important that the richest ones are all friends and have chats in big gardens about saving the planet, because they're the only ones that can do it through weapons sales and patronising poor countries. Pretty sure that's the best way to challenge climate change and all the world's ills, right? It's just to let all the countries that are having the worst times die off and thus instantly reduce carbon emissions so places like America can eat coal for lunch and ship petrol into the eyes of endangered species with gay abandon. I am being facetious, of course, as according to Johnson's opening speech, this summit was all about the need to build back better after Covid, which explains why he's doing everything he can to let the virus continue to run rampant as otherwise he'll have to start doing some work. 
He told the other leaders that it was vital to learn from the mistakes of the 2008 financial crisis and tackle the scar of inequality, which we can only take to mean that he thinks banks shouldn't have been penalised for pissing about with people's money, and he's upset that inequality gets free healthcare rather than paying for wound treatment via insurance. His concern is that in the last great economic recession 13 years ago, recovery was not quite uniform across all parts of society. So that explains why, based on his leadership so far, the plan is to make sure more areas and sectors are equally as fucked as each other. It's hard to take any of the statements the PM made at the G7 with anything other than a large salt bin, much like all the statements he makes ever. But particularly so when Johnson waffled on about a vision for a cleaner, greener world after having flown to Cornwall from London. Using a domestic flight to make the case for being environmentally friendly is like promoting healthy eating by eating your way out of a sarcophagus made of Big Macs. There were pledges made for 1 billion Covid vaccines for poorer nations, which is nice of the G7, and maybe they'll offer all those places some of the sandwiches that weren't eaten at the end of the meeting too, and they'll pay an extra dollar or two for authentic cultural souvenirs from a stall, because you know, they're just good people inside. One billion vaccines isn't really enough to help the rest of the world, but it's enough to give them hope that there are vaccines out there. And, you know, maybe one day, if they all just work hard enough, they'll be able to watch someone else get vaccinated on the telly or over the expensive but weak broadband service. The world leaders all promised to move away from coal burning too, well apart from the fire pits they had on the beach, because that brie needed to be baked or there'd have been hell to pay. Perhaps most importantly, Britain was able to affirm strong relationships with other nations in its post-Brexit era, like America. This must also be why, when President and unwell Jiminy Cricket Joe Biden presented Johnson with the gift of a £6,000 handmade Boris bike with a helmet featuring US and UK flags, the Prime Minister knew that, being basically family with the President, he could give him the shitty, shitty President of a framed photo of anti-slavery campaign of Frederick Douglass that he'd printed out from Wikipedia. Now, that's a gift that would barely be acceptable from a charger related to, but I guess Johnson can't sleep with Biden, so there's just no incentive to try any harder. But this time round, there's been a less warm feeling from the US camp than normal, as Biden has some concern over the post-Brexit tensions in Northern Ireland, you know, the country that Johnson regularly has to be reminded exists, and Biden has encouraged him to protect the Good Friday Agreement, you know, the agreement that Johnson regularly has to be reminded exists. The US president has accused the British government of inflaming the situation with the EU, but actually he's wrong about that, as it's barely even chilled at best thanks to all the food safety regulations. Yes, as if there couldn't be enough signs to the rest of the world that we're a real-life Beano comic strip, the UK appears to be in a sausage war with the EU, which isn't just a euphemism for Johnson flailing about. The Northern Ireland Protocol means only frozen meats can enter the single market, meaning there's no chilled British chipolatas allowed. In November of last year, Johnson declared that nothing could stop the Great British Sausage from making it to Belfast, but it seems he was just sexting in advance of his visit there, because actually the very agreement he signed and said was the best deal ever has stopped any sort of chunky porkies from docking the harbour. The DUP's Sammy Wilson, always looking like he's been made to leave the pub because last orders was three weeks ago, so that chilled British sausages are a threat to the peace process, which is unlike his party, who are usually more angered by people warming up their wieners. So now Lord David Frost, who's directly related to many reconstituted meat products, is insisting the EU revisit the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a bit rich from someone who's clearly never visited it himself even once. Johnson insisted that nobody warned him that Brexit would cause border controls in Northern Ireland, even though it's something that if he'd bothered to look up, even a magic eight ball would have repeatedly said, of course it fucking would. 
According to the number 10 press office, French president and supporting cast member in a low-budget comedy film about cat burglars, Emmanuel Macron, made some comment about how Northern Ireland is not part of the UK, though people who speak French say that isn't actually what he said at all. Ugh, that's the problem with foreign languages though, isn't it? They aren't English, and so how are the British government ever meant to understand them? Not even bothering to check what was said allowed Foreign Secretary and model for the cover of the Prodigy's Music for a Jilted Generation album, Dominic Raab, to say that the EU leaders should have a bit of respect for Northern Ireland. Like Raab, for example, who's openly said he's never read the Good Friday Agreement, and I guess if those EU leaders really cared, then they wouldn't have bothered either. Boris Johnson said that Northern Ireland is part of one great indivisible UK. It's just one of the parts he doesn't care about, like Wales, Scotland, or any of the bits of England he doesn't live in and doesn't have to visit. Of course, as you know, this sort of pointlessly aggressive chat over purposeful misunderstandings is great for diplomatic relations, and Macron hit back saying that none of the Northern Ireland Protocol is negotiable on account of, you know, it being exactly what Britain wanted until they didn't. If only the EU treated the British government like the toddlers they are, then they'd just leave the deal out on the side for them to find while trying to climb the sofa hours later, and they'd no doubt be delighted with it. The Health Secretary Matt Hancock, a man who definitely makes explosion noises as he bumps elbows with people, was questioned by a select committee of MPs last week, where he proceeded to appear like someone else had quantum leaped into his body, having had no clue of what has happened over the past year. He once again repeated his claim that there was never a PPE shortage, but if that's the case, did nurses just wear bin bags for japes? Was it just a bit of fun, fancy dress on the ward? Or does Matt Hancock mean that there wasn't a national shortage because he had a ton in his garage and therefore it wasn't the whole country? According to Hancock, the initial estimates of death toll from COVID given to the government were 820,000 people, but he was determined that that wouldn't happen on his watch. Presumably, the 150,000 that did die did so when he wasn't looking then because he was too busy doing creepy press-ups for photo ops or going to the horse racing. In response to the comments made by mean egg cup Dominic Cummings, Hancock said that it was telling that the Prime Minister's former advisor hadn't actually provided any evidence for any of the accusations that the Health Secretary was massively shit, and that actually the Department of Health improved over time. Which is of course great in a crisis, isn't it? What you really want is those dealing with it to only learn how to deal with it once it's all too late and everyone's dead. Hancock backed up the massive shitness by saying they didn't have a rapidly scalable testing operation in place, which they really needed, or major diagnostics capability. Sure, but that's only because the government haven't funded the NHS properly or anything that might help for years, haven't put anything in place to kind of deal with this sort of thing, and they spent £37 billion on one that didn't work. It's not really an excuse to complain about the things you didn't have that would have helped when you didn't fund them or start them in the first place. If you decide it would be cheaper to buy a car with no brakes and then a year later while careering into a tree complain that what you needed was an adequate stopping system, then that is on you. It's always someone else's fault, something that young people have ruined by getting their jabs as quickly as possible, with more than a million people aged 25 to 29 booking in vaccine appointments as soon as it was allowed last Tuesday. There were worries that they wouldn't, which were based on nothing but further hope that they could be blamed for things going wrong instead of anyone else. I'm sure it'll just be months before the young people are told they were too eager for vaccines and now it's their fault that there aren't enough left to send elsewhere or they weren't reckoning on needing so many COVID safe people doing jobs. So soon everyone born in the late 90s will have to work for free in a pit to make up for it. In other news, the government, and in particular dregs from Ray Harryhausen's reject bin, Michael Gove, were found to have been unlawful again when handling a government contract to a polling company owned by long-term friends of his and Dominic Cummings. Obviously, the news has shocked many as none of us thought Michael Gove had any friends. The Cabinet Office have said there won't be an investigation into the £500,000 contract because Gove wasn't involved in the awarding of it, you know, apart from the bit where he awarded it to his friends. Gove is so unlike that even the contracts he works on don't want anyone to know they had anything to do with him. 
Boris Johnson said it's totally wrong for fans to boo football players for taking the knee, but he did say he thought the England team's chosen method of protest against racism was ineffective, which is probably because it's very hard to dismantle the home office by kneeling. Home Secretary and Woman, whose unnecessary prequel origin film would show that she's never been misunderstood, she's just always been a full-on twat, Pretty Patel, said it was okay for fans to boo the players as they have a choice and a right to do so. Judging by how Pretty Patel sees human rights, that means a number of football fans will be deported on a plane by tomorrow night. Housing Minister and face swap between a baked bean and a creep, Robert Jenrick, laid a wreath on behalf of the government in memory of those who died in the Grenfell Tower fire four years ago. There's a high chance he paid for it by adding the cost to the service charge of all the leaseholders still stuck in buildings with flammable cladding. Johnson tweeted that the government is committed to ensuring that a tragedy like Grenfell never happens again, which they aren't, or they'd actually be doing something about it. Knowing him, he probably sent that tweet while sitting by a bonfire. 83% of a £610 million boost allocated for a towns fund has gone to Tory-held seats, but they've denied, of course they fucking have, doing pork barrel politics, something that's very hard for them to convince anyone by when they're led by a pork barrel. Hartlepool, who recently elected a Conservative MP, have received £25 million in funds, and if they vote for a different party in the next election after swiping all that cash, then I will applaud them for playing the government like a fiddle made entirely of fiddlers. Conservative MP and character on a TV show that definitely did it, Daniel Kabazinski, that's probably how you say it, no one knows or cares, was made to publicly apologise in the Commons after threatening staff members, which he did, but he said he was under great pressure at the time in part because he's so tall. Yeah, fair play to him. Being so tall does mean gravity must have a greater effect, plus the pull from the moon as well on the other sort of side. It's a wonder he's able to operate on a daily basis. If only, if only his constituents would understand him and vote for someone else, and that way he wouldn't have to stand for them. And lastly, in Israel, hair on a piece of knocky, Benjamin Netanyahu has been ousted as Prime Minister after 12 years by a coalition government. Seems really appropriate that he was ganged up on and kicked out of his place without a choice. Four more weeks. Four more weeks. Who's excited? Oh, what? I mean, we knew it was going to happen, right? We all saw the narrative arc right at the beginning. And while it's nice to have a surprise ending, you got to give the fans what they want, right? Consider me looking very stupid uh, saying last week on this podcast that I would be super busy with gigs, huh? Yes, it looks like I've lost a month of work and any possibilities of paying bills with ease again, so that is nice. But on the plus side, tons more time to do this podcast, so that will show me for having optimism or hope in 2021. Still, I'm sure our landlord is going to accept payments uh, in hilarious comments about how I nearly had work and it's the effort that counts, right? Or perhaps in sort of unused, naive optimism. Who knows? <sighs> I mean, I'm, I'm sort of zen about it, to be honest, because on the plus plus side and taking a leaf out of the prime minister's book lisa means i don't have to do anything um i just wish i could also take the leaf of having tory donors that would buy me twenty-five thousand pounds of food as that would make it a lot easier um i've spent the weekend uh, in other people's gardens in the sunshine eating lovely food that i didn't make that sounds like i've trespassed or something doesn't it like i've sort of uh, climbed in when they weren't there but i was there by invitation and so i've soaked up enough vitamin d good chat and tasty food to kind of keep me going for a week or so i reckon without feeling too miserable about all the work going um yeah can you have too much vitamin d you just wear it out right if you get too much it's not like i'll start sort of emitting sunbeams from my orifices if i take in too much right? i don't i don't know i use the my fitness pal app because i clearly hate myself and the other day it told me off for having too much vitamin c in a day what could that possibly do if i've got too much of that well i get some sort of anti-scurvy where my gums are too strong and they become almost dangerous 
I really hope to find out soon. I'm going to become some like, mega gums superhero. I don't even know how that would work. Anyway, um, thank you to all of you who wrote in nice things about my panic last week about keeping this show alive. Some really good suggestions that I'm going to mull over and think about. Um, I mean, it is really gutting to lose a whole ton of work that I financially very much needed, but it means that I don't have to worry about doing this show for a bit. Uh, I've got lots of time to do it, so I guess every cloud. Um, but thank you to those of you who did get in touch, and I hope you're doing okay despite the new restrictions announcements. I hope it hasn't sort of ruined things for you too much. Um, and big thanks tons to Dave, James, and Kofi Sports for donating to the Kofi last week, and to Matt for managing to find the ACAR supporter button, which... I mean, Matt, that is super impressive in itself. You deserve some sort of medal for that. I still have no idea where it is. Um, if you can donate and support this show and me, uh, which now is even more helpful than normal, then please pop a pound or three into the ko-fi.com forward slash bro. Join the patreon.com forward slash bro. Uh, or just see if you're as clever as Matt and can find the ACAR support button too. And of course, review the show. Tell me about it. You've got a bad mood about it. Um, the other thing that Autumn on Twitter managed to do, thank you Autumn, uh, is vote for this podcast in the British Podcast Awards listeners voting category. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, it's sort of pointless when the award is just definitely going to go to whichever big celeb podcast can get one million people voting for it. But if you still fancy giving this show a nudge, I don't know, just for the kind of support, then I've popped the link into the podcast blurb. A um, couple of other things. Obviously, I'm very aware it's Pride Month. Very happy Pride Month to uh, all of you who, um, I suppose, celebrate it. Because I was going to say all the sort of LGBTQ plus listeners, but also, other, uh, you know, all the people that support and, and uh, believe in Pride Month as well. Um, then big shout out to all of you. And I was trying to get some guests uh, that are relevant to that. And so far, I've had absolutely no responses from any of the 15 people I've contacted about it. So um, probably because busy having fun celebrating Pride Month in a month where... Uh, now restrictions haven't been lifted which is probably shit for the second year in the row anyway so that's that but if you're wondering Tina you're really not on top of all the weeks and celebrations that are meant to be happening that is I've tried I've really goddamn tried um, so uh, next week guest nothing to do with Pride Month who knows week after we'll see we'll get there eventually um, and uh, last thing this week before we head deep into the pod I just wanted to give a big shout out to uh, pal and brilliant author Nika Shukler who um sort of uh, let out that he turned down an MBE last month and basically has all of my sheer respect for doing that. That is a proper champion. So do go read all of Nikesh's books and listen to his Brown Baby podcast too um, because just fucking brilliant. Good. He said no to the Queen. High fives. On this week's show, I am talking to Tom Peters at Tax Justice about tax. But no, wait, come back. It's an informative and surprisingly optimistic chat that I think you shall enjoy muchly. Plus, Sausage Wars. I just enjoy saying that so much. Sausage Wars. It is weird that you can get pretty much everything from Amazon nowadays unless you're keen to order some appropriate tax payments. I have searched for it on there, but it just recommended me a relaxing beach wave and footprints at sunset canvas wall art picture. Because yeah, thanks. That's exactly what I want. A constant visual reminder that Jeff Bezos' money gets to have better holidays than I do in its many offshore locations. Obviously, exactly what an alien would look like if it was disguised as a human despite never having seen one before, Jeff Bezos, is just one of many tech giants and multinational corporations that like to lay down their roots in many a place while insisting that you pay them for using up all your nutrients. By using various schemes, these companies have been avoiding paying billions in tax. And you might think, but that's fine, because they only exist in Internetlandia, a place free of the need to fix potholes or have a bin day. 
sure, but their delivery drivers have to use those pothole roads. Their offices and warehouses have to dispose of all the heaps of unnecessary packaging on those bin days. And generally, look, it would just be really great if those with money actually invested in areas rather than just killed off our local stores by delivering embarrassing items directly to your home. So you don't have to walk around your supermarket shouting, does anyone know where the English breakfasts in a can for one are? As this is a big problem all over the globe, the G7, yep, them, have agreed to make these businesses pay more tax with a deal that should stop them operating their companies between countries. You know, in a different way that ferries do. It's fine when they do They have to go between countries. That's sort of their job. So is this a change that will make a difference? And could Bezos soon be funding local culture while also destroying it with the poultry selection on Prime? Or will he and others just find another way to make their earnings exempt? And is that why so many of them are trying to go to space? Because the moon is as offshore as it gets. This week, I spoke to Tom Peters at Tax Justice UK, an organisation campaigning for a fair and effective tax system that benefits all. I asked Tom all about if this G7 deal is all it's cracked up to be, if the UK post-Brexit is now becoming a new tax haven but with worse weather, and if generally the last year has made us all even more pro-tax with our dependency on public funding. I just can't bloody wait to pay my tax. Yeah, get rid of your clapping for the NHS, just have my tax. I haven't, got, I haven't, paid, I haven't earned anything for a year. Anyway, this is, oddly, considering the subject matter, one of the more positive chats I've had on this show in the recent months, so I hope you enjoy, yes, a chat about tax. I know. Here is Tom. Hi, Tom. Thank you for coming on the podcast this week. Um, we've just heard this big news about the G7's uh, historic deal, which they say I'm always wary of that word because a lot of things in the past are historic by nature of them being in the past. Um, but the G7 have done a historic deal on global minimum corporation tax. Um, and I just wondered, is it enough to get all these big tech giants to pay the tax that they should? Yeah, it's a, it's a really exciting time. Uh, thanks very much for having me on the show. Um, so I think, it, I think it's worth just sort of mentioning quickly that what's come out of the deal is actually, is actually two things. So there was a proposal to try and change the way that the biggest multinationals were taxed. Um, and this was sort of particularly aimed at the digital companies um, and was, was, was sort of about basically trying to redistribute their profits into places where they, where they sell things. Um, and this sort of came out of a long OECD process. And this was sort of a smaller part of part of the deal. But I just mention it because um, in case it comes up later and, you know, we want to sort of talk about the different components. And then, as you say, there's this global minimum corporate tax rate. And, and, and what's happened here is basically the G7 has sort of got together and agreed that um, for, for big multinational companies with annual sales over 750 million euros, um, they'll apply this sort of 15% minimum rate uh, of tax so that wherever a company is booking profits, they'll pay at least this minimum on those profits. Uh, and, this, and this, I mean, you know, sort of starting with the positives, you know, I think it's fair to say that this is really quite a historic change. You know, we've seen... Um, sort of four decades of of a consensus uh, that you know we just sort of allow firms to get as big and powerful as possible um, and states should sort of compete to, to gain investment from these huge powerful global entities by just driving down their own sort of national tax rates and so 
you know, for, for, for this is quite a sort of incredible shift, you know, turn of the tanker, really, in some ways, in that these these seven countries have got together and said, no, no, this can't continue. Um, you know, this model has effectively, I mean, it, it, implicitly, it, it says that this model has failed, and that, you know, it hasn't delivered the sort of investment in, in, in nations that was promised, really. And instead, we need to sort of reassert a level of, of state sovereignty, um, and almost sort of rein in these corporations and 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 use that money to fund our public services, you know, to to support building back from the pandemic. So, from from a starting point, this is this is quite a, quite quite a major moment in the tax space. Um, is it enough? Well, we've got we, we're sort of you know it's sort of yes but no. Uh, we we <laughs> we think. It was put very well by by this guy Gabriel Zuckman, who's an associate professor of economics in the U.S. and he's been looking at this stuff for a while, and he described it this deal as historic, inadequate, and promising, which I thought was a nice sort of slightly contradictory phrase that <laughs> uh, just about I guess sums up our view really. And I, I think the first point is that the rate is very low that's come out of the G7. So when President Biden was sort of pushing this agenda forward, he was talking about a rate of 21% of a global minimum corporate tax rate. Um, and that would have raised, I think, about $540 billion annually, according to our, our colleagues at the Tax Justice Network. Um, but now, obviously, it's sort of come out with this 15% rate, which is significantly lower in terms of the in terms of the revenue that it would raise, and also has slightly less of a, a sort of stronger incentive to for companies in that, you know, um, part of the idea of this is stopping people from from moving profits all over the world to try to get the best rate possible and obviously the lower you set the floor the less incentive companies have to sort of end that behavior i guess so so that would be our sort of first criticism and we also have an issue with just with with how Basically, the, the G7 countries have sort of written this deal in a way that rather benefits themselves, I guess, as you would, as you would sort of imagine. Um, so there, there is an issue about how how the revenues raised are sort of distributed by through this deal, um, and basically the the vast share of them go to the G7 countries at the expense, obviously, of anyone who's who's not in the G7. So we do have some issues about, I guess, sort of the details of how this of how this plan is being proposed. Um, uh, in terms of you know whether it's a fair settlement for for the planet more broadly than just the wealthiest few, and, and can I just check because the you know the fifteen percent rate that's a lot lower the, the UK's current corporate tax rate am I right in thinking it's nineteen percent but it's going up to twenty five at some point soon so surely this still gives those big tech giants a a lot better deal than local businesses that are not multinational. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, so we so we were calling for a twenty five percent rate when these when these negotiations started as a global minimum, and part of the argument was exactly that, which was for domestic businesses who can't exploit uh, tax competition across the across the world, you know, because they don't have the might or the sort of mobility, um, then they sort of complain really, you know, that these companies who are already big can accrue an additional unfair advantage by being able to shift their profits to other places. So if you if if we were sort of hoping, you know, and calling initially for the UK government to try and push the rate higher, actually, and to go up towards this 25% exact, for exactly the reasons you describe, in that um, then it would create this sort of level playing field across the UK domestic uh, rate and and where multinationals might operate elsewhere in the globe. And also, this might be, uh, I don't know if this has been um, 
clarified completely yet, but I, I read yesterday that also certain big companies, which say sort of such as Amazon, it may not be covered by this because their profits in individual countries may not reach the amount that have been set at the minimum rate is that have i have i said that correctly yeah. I'm, I'm here yeah. as a complete tax idiot so please correct me if i'm <laughs> no, wrong no, but no. Uh, my worry was sort of reading that does that mean that this deal to sort of tackle tech, uh, tech giants may avoid certain tech giants uh, entirely yeah so this was so so when i mentioned the two parts of the deal initially this is about what they call pillar one which is not the global minimum corporation tax rate i'll try to explain this but it's a sort of additional part of the deal and so what what pillar one what the proposal for pillar one is is it's it was specifically aimed about trying to deal with digital companies um of which we all know the names and biden when he was sort of talking about it was was talking about you know the 100 biggest multinationals and basically they measure the profit margin of these really big companies and any profits over a 10% margin they levy an additional 20% on so if you if you have a hundred pounds of sales and you make ten pounds in that hundred uh, profit, then they'll say, okay, you know, you keep that; that's yours. But if you make twenty pounds profit in that, they'll they'll take twenty percent of the additional ten pounds. Does that is that clear? Yes. So and, there's still a lot of profit that won't be taxed. Yeah. So so they give so yes. Yeah, so they give they give people a sort of initial bit of profit, and they say, well, there's this additional bit, and we're going to take some of that. And importantly, in this deal, in, in this part of the deal, that bit that they take, they then reallocate two countries on the basis of where the sales are made. So everyone gets a bit of tax revenue from this, this particular part of the deal, um, depending, obviously, where the multinationals are based. Um, so the problem was that, uh, basically, when... <laughs> When when they added this sort of 10% thing of, you know, you can keep 10% of your profits, that seemed okay at first. And then people like TaxWatch, who did some analysis, realized that for lots of the biggest tech companies, because they reinvest so much of their revenue in, in growing and, you know, driving up their share price and becoming a bigger power in the market, actually lots of them don't reach 10% of global profits. So we started to see fairly big companies, uh, like, for example, in the tax watch report, they mentioned Amazon. And the suggestion was that actually this might not cover them at all, even though this is specifically what it was designed to do. So the pillar one as, that I'm describing, there's lots of problems with. But the pillar two, which is this global minimum corporation ta tax rate, should apply across the board still. So we still think that, you know, the Amazons, et cetera, et cetera, will be, um, will be caught up in this 15% global minimum rate and will probably pay more tax as a result of that. Right. That does. Okay. That's, that's good. That does sound a lot more promising. History. <laughs> yes. No, well, that's, it's incredibly useful through. to know because I think, uh, having read sort of some of the criticism of it and not understanding the pillar system, you have definitely made this sound a lot more promising than I think I initially thought. So, and, and I mean, one of the other things I wanted to ask is obviously this is just the G7. I know it's a global minimum corporation tax, but the G7 are only seven countries. And I know this is being taken to the G20. Um, but do, does every country around the world have to individually sign up to this? Is it? And, and if they don't, does that mean that we could have these uh, sort of big corporations just focusing on the countries that aren't part of this deal and, and investing there instead? Yeah, so it's a really good question. So, so, the, way the, so the way the global minimum... The, minimum, the global minimum corporation tax rate, pillar two, works 
is effectively it can work by a sort of coalition of the willing. So what Biden's trying to do is get as many people signed up to it as possible uh, in the hope that that will sort of have some momentum on, on its own. Because how, the mechanism for, 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 sort of for introducing this 15% rate is basically in countries with a lower than 15% rate um, where, where the multinational is operating in, the home country of that multinational will be able to top up the tax. So let's say just a, a totally um, non-real example of a US corporation you know, operating in Ireland, and let's say they're paying 10% effective tax rate, then the US would be able to come in and say, we'll take an additional 5% so that you're paying 15% on those profits. So it doesn't actually completely matter if every country in the world signs up because it's being dominated by these countries, which, by the way, also have the highest concentration, you know, also have most of the multinationals uh, based sort of originating domestically within them. So for the pillar two part, we think that Biden could probably, if he can get a broad political support across the G7, try to, you know, really push it with the G20 to get as many people on board, then, then we think that that could probably, probably go ahead. But with the bit that I was describing previously, which is this sort of digital side, that's a bit more complicated. And I think we're already seeing, um, you know, people sort of challenging that. And I think it will require a bit more of an actual legislative process, um, uh, either sort of EU or domestically, uh, to actually get through. So that's a bit more of a grey area. But I think it's worth saying, and I haven't said this, that, you know, the global minimum corporation tax rate is where the action is. You know, this is going to raise hundreds of billions of dollars, even at the 15% rate, whereas the smaller bit about digital companies, you're only talking, you know, 10 to $15 billion. So it's less, less perhaps for us to be concerned about. So the global minimum rate, we think is going to go ahead. And we think it's going to be have, have a really big impact in terms of in terms of revenue. Oh, that's that's really nice and positive. Good. How exciting! And I guess yeah. I mean you sort of uh, you know without being too optimistic about the state of the world, but do, do you sort of feel like this is this is early steps because obviously as 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 the criticism is it's, it's sort of inadequate or not enough yet, but it is promising and it is the first time this is happening. So I guess this could just be the beginning of maybe learning how to do it even better at a later stage. It, it shows willingness, I guess. Yeah, and, and and like I said, you know, we really can't we really can't sort of underplay how much of a change this is given where we were even even you know a year ago even under the previous uh sort of president um uh you know th things really have changed a lot and as you say this could be the start um of, of actually quite a different set of of global tax rules and quite a different sort of shared consensus about about how we approach tax and about what's important and about you know what the role of the state is compared to compared to these really really big um sort of transnational global corporations Great. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, that's, 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 I'm pleased I spoke to you today. That's quite uplifting to know. Um, I worry that I'm going to now change the tact of the conversation and, and uh, so hopefully not bring things down. But one of the uh, concerns about the UK was post-Brexit that, and I think it was uh, Philip Hammond, wasn't it, who, who sort of warned that this might happen, but that, and in fact, lots of other people, uh, that we might become a low regulation tax haven post-Brexit. Um, but obviously we've seen actually things like corporation tax increased. And, and I wondered, are we still heading towards that destination or or do you feel like uh, the ways in which tax are being viewed here is is changing too? 
So I think it's I think it's a really good question. Um, I think it's sort of a bit unclear at the moment because you know on the one hand you've got the chance of introducing these things called free ports, which are these sort of low tax areas on on the UK coast, um, uh, which you know traditionally have been uh, considered quite quite sort of I guess. Uh, uh, right-wing, low-tax, economic, fiscal orthodoxy. And then on the other side, you've got the chance to sort of, at the same time, ramping up corporation tax, as you said. So it's quite difficult, really, to, to, to glean a sort of overall coherent fiscal strategy from all of this, because it seems like there's different things happening that, that almost imply different orthodoxies underneath them. Um, but I think I think it's interesting just to sort of reflect on the Conservative Party, really. And I think a lot of this is driven by the fact that, you know, the Conservative Party after Brexit in 2019 is now this very broad coalition of different views and different blocks of MPs. And we've seen these sort of MPs collect into different groupings within the Conservative Party. So we've got, you know, the Northern Research Group, we've got Leveling Up Task Force, we've got the IEA Free Market Forum. I mean, there's endless acronyms of different sort of grouplets within the Conservatives. And so I think to some extent, the sort of overall policy is about managing these different groups um, who are all competing to set the direction of the government. And, so, and that means that, you know, often it, thing, contradictory policies emerge um, uh, and, and the overall strategy sort of remains a bit, a bit unclear, really. So I think, I, think that that, I think that that's where there's this sort of incoherence, which, 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 which as you, as you as as you sort of described, I mean, of course, it seems that the Chancellor himself is is a fairly sort of classical, um, almost on the libertarian wing of things, who would probably ideally quite like a quite like a sort of low tax um, low tax future for the UK. But I guess you know the the other the other aspect of this is is obviously the pandemic and and, and the huge amount of spending that the the British state has done to keep keep the economy afloat. And there are questions about how quickly we need to pay that back. Um, obviously, you know, re, uh, borrowing costs are extremely low at the moment. Um, uh, but at the same time, that does provide a sort of additional pressure to start looking at tax as one tool. Uh, that where, whereas for, 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 for characters who may not have been willing to do that previously. Um, so yeah, I thought I thought actually I saw um, Katie Balls who writes The Spectator summed it up quite nicely when she said uh, support for Johnson was a mile wide and an inch deep. And I thought that kind of <laughs> was a fairly good summary of the state of the Conservative <laughs> Party right now and, and sort of explains a lot of perhaps the mixed messages we might we might see on policy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Tom in a minute, but first... Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Yeah, that's where we are with Brexit fallout now. The UK has become a dog on Britain's Got Talent, while the EU won't hit their buzzer as they're sure there's something better coming along next. We are supposedly in a sausage war. I'm not sure if that's better than a culture war or worse, as art is life, but some sausages are real bangers. Once again, the Northern Ireland Protocol, aka this is a very good deal, Boris Johnson 2020, has proven to have more than a few problems, especially for anyone in Northern Ireland who specifically likes chilled British sausages, as opposed to uh, frozen ones. As a veggie myself, I can't fathom what the difference might be, but perhaps for many, the difference in having to heat something up for 10 minutes or 30 minutes might be a real game changer. So look, I shan't mock. EU safety regulations allow only frozen meats to enter the single market, which means chilled meats like mince and sausages can't get traded into the EU from outside of it, only inside of it from inside of it. The Northern Ireland Protocol means that Northern Ireland can get chilled meats from Ireland, but not from Britain. Well, they could during the grace period from January the 1st to July the 1st, which was sausage time, and then right as barbecue season gets into its stride, it's only frozen Cumberlands for anyone in NI who's particular about the porking they get. I know I've said it pretty much every podcast since the dawn of time, but the reason the protocol is there is because Boris Johnson insisted on not having an Irish backstop, an agreement that would have avoided Northern Ireland having any border issues because it would stay in the single market. It would have applied indefinitely unless the UK and the EU agreed on a different arrangement like they're having to anyway. But instead, for British sovereignty of Johnson and how does he look like he's always having a difficult poo, Lord David Frost insisted on this shitty, weird, overcomplicated arrangement that everyone ever said would be problematic and causes the whole United Kingdom to leave the single market, meaning Northern Ireland is included in any UK trade deals but has no tariffs or restrictions on goods crossing the Irish border in either direction, instead putting a fat border right down the Irish Sea. Exactly where many pro-Brexit advocates said there definitely wouldn't be one, but maybe that's because they're unable to see anything that's past the shallow end. Yeah, it was a long old sentence to get to that payoff, wasn't it? But I sort of feel like it was worth it. The British government opposed an Irish sea border and then voted for it anyway, and then complained that it wasn't what they voted for after specifically rushing the agreement through so no one could see what they voted for. And now people can't have sausages. Who'd have thought it'd come to this? Oh yeah, absolutely everyone except Boris Johnson. And look, I know you all know all that, that's why I said it super fast, but here we are again, where the only people who didn't know are the ones who made all of it happen. And it's worth reminding you all, and me all, and them all, that this is all our fault, and by our, I mean the UK government, who've been massive dickheads about everything. What could this sausage war lead to? Well, EU leaders are saying, you did this, you stick with it, and Johnson and Frost are saying, well, this isn't what we want in threatening unilateral action, which would mean imposing tariffs on EU goods and possibly leading to a trade war, which could ultimately mean even less sausages for Northern Ireland or lots of other food of varying degrees of warmth. Or, or, or the UK could back down and agree to the same regulatory checks as the EU, meaning that 80% of Irish sea checks could just be eliminated. The British fishing industry could actually sell things, loads of the food industry could sell more things, and a whole load of hassle could disappear. But, you know, so would the whole government Brexit bravado. And we all know Johnson & Co would sooner let everyone go sausage-free than let that happen. 
Whatever the situation, Northern Ireland will no doubt bear the brunt of it, which could also affect a US-UK trade deal too, according to Joe Biden's concerns about upholding the Good Friday Agreement. So, how to sum up the way in which the UK will emerge from this, having burned all possible bridges? I've got no clue. Not a sausage. And now, back to Tom. I, I want to get to that's great that phrase. Um, I I want to get to the pandemic in, in a minute, but I I just wondered, and I suppose this is a bit of a loaded question. So I say we'll get to pandemic in a minute, but obviously the pandemic has changed the how Brexit may have gone and how we may have seen it. anyway. But I, were there things sort of post Brexit that you can see that are more? In, uh, you know, you mentioned free ports. Is there are there any other areas that are perhaps concerning in terms of a low tax haven UK, or has it not gone that way at all, or is it very? Am, am I asking a question that's very hard to tell right now? Um, so I think, I mean, I think that the other, I think the other element of this, and I, I, I'm, I'm sort of talking slightly from a personal view here rather than representing the Tax Justice UK view, is that a lot of, it seems to me that a lot of domestic policy, particularly in, in the United States, is actually being driven by these sort of external events. So, you know, Biden's been very clear about his his need to tackle climate change, but also there's this quite hawkish uh, foreign policy towards China. And I think to some extent, there's, an, you know, this sort of implicit recognition that our our, our, our economic model hasn't delivered the sorts of gains that that perhaps were promised in 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 over the period of of neoliberalism, and at the same time, the U.S. is looking over its shoulder at these sort of rising hegemonic powers who've been doing things quite differently by you know taxing and massive massive state spending and, and, and stimulus, and I feel like that's one one pressure perhaps that has been a, a bit ignored here, and that is also driving this sort of feeling of well, we actually need to put tax rates up because we need to invest. Uh, domestically, so that we can compete with with some of the big sort of emergent emergent powers. So, I guess where does that where does that leave us in the sort of Brexit conversation? Well, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with with this tax deal as it moves its way through the G20 and is discussed at the EU, etc. Because it will be quite an interesting sort of. I guess reflection of the power play between different states and you know who who's powerful and who isn't but at the moment it sort of feels like in our in our perhaps slightly isolated position now outside of Europe that effectively we we, we sort of have to go along a bit more with what the United States uh, uh, suggests that we do in part just to you know keep our keep our allies close and so on so I think that, that there's sort of interesting geopolitical conversation that the Brexit conversation feeds into um, but is perhaps a bit bigger than that uh, 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 and that has has real repercussions on on how people are thinking about uh, tax rates and state spending and the size of the, the state, etc. Does that make so sense? I've gone on a bit of a sort no, of tangent now, I think. But <laughs> absolutely does, and I think it's so fascinating that we were sort of expecting, and especially sort of pre-pandemic, that everything at the moment to be dictated by the the sort of aftermath of Brexit, and actually it's been far more dictated by the US election outcome last year in that sense, which is is so interesting. Um, and and one of the things I, I, I sort of wanted to ask you about the UK tax policy is, and I, I should say, sort of for the listeners hearing this, when I emailed Tom about this question, uh, you sort of said that this that tax day was a non-entity, and I didn't actually know what tax day was till I googled it. As as someone who <laughs> does a weekly politics podcast, reads all of the news and all the things to mention, I had no idea that we had a tax day on March the twenty third. So obviously they really pushed it, and um, that was supposedly full of policies and strategies about a change in direction. And and it, it, was any of that sort of quite exciting? I mean, obviously. You said 
and it wasn't much of a day. Was anything of it anything? I suppose I should ask. Was it was it anything at all? <laughs> well, um, so I mean, yeah, I, I'm not surprised you missed it the first time round um, because it, this was a new initiative from the government, and they basically said we're going to have the budget and make you know these sort of big policy announcements, and then we're going to follow it with this thing called tax day, in which, as you said, will be you know, the government will be making these sort of further declarations around tax. And, you know, we were, I guess we were a little bit sceptical at Tax Justice UK about what it would mean, but but nevertheless thought, well, you know, another opportunity to, for, for some potential tax changes. And at the moment, you know, given the corporation tax increase, things seem to be moving in a, in a slightly more progressive direction. Maybe this would be good. But I'm afraid in the end, it wasn't really, it wasn't really much of anything. It was a sort of announcement of a few reviews into uh, administrative and technical tax changes that I don't think your listeners would uh, perhaps be particularly interested in around, you know, digitalizing the tax system, etc. And it's a shame because there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of work to be done, really, um, you know, and Tax Justice UK is, is calling has been calling for now for a long time for a number of a number of really important changes, particularly around uh, taxation of wealth, which we believe has been under tax for a long time. Um, you know, it's really unfair that at the moment sort of unearned wealth increases are taxed at a lower rate than income. So, you know, if you own some shares and they and they go up through no perhaps perhaps through no labour of your own, then you pay less tax on that increase than you do if you went and earned and some and some money through working uh, all day. So we think that's sort of a basic unfair principle in our tax system that the Chancellor could have could have addressed. And actually, his own Office of Tax Simplification came out with a report saying that they needed to push up this capital gains tax. Which, which deals with unearned wealth. And then, of course, there's a big question about housing and property, all of which uh, the tax system isn't, isn't really able to cope with very well. And this is sort of driving, um, uh, you know, house prices up ever, ever, ever more and leaving lots of people unable to get themselves into, uh, you know, stable, stable housing, stuck in, the, stuck in the private rental sector, as we've all probably heard a lot about. Um, so we so we were really hoping for a bit more from tax days, I guess what I'm saying, uh, but it did fall a bit flat. Is I mean, do we just need a big sort of overhaul of the UK tax? I mean, I I I, I I'm a self-employed person, and I find that the tax system is just so either too tricksy, or I mean, I was very pr- surprised to hear that this year I don't have to pay tax in advance because I haven't earned anything for a year. But also, you know, it, it always seems to be right. You're self-employed, you better pay tax way in advance, and then you hear people that are actually earning a definite salary don't have to, and it's all these sort of things that you go. This all feels more complicated and difficult than it should be. Is that? You know, uh, is is the situation sort of from tax justice point of view? Do we do we just need things changed, or does the the whole kind of UK taxism need a bit of a, a reform? Really, very very big question. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, no, I <laughs> Sorry. Mean, <laughs> I think I think that I think from our perspective, there are very clear areas where where the tax system isn't currently working, um, and I think we're sort of really focused actually just on on those specific areas as as I described. Um, and you know tax deals with so much it's a sort of across so much of our of our lives and and has so many different policy effects i think sort of talking about one massive overhaul perhaps might be might be more than the political process could bear <laughs> but but nevertheless i do think that you know there are big structural changes that we could make um to make the tax system more progressive and and that's certainly what what you know what we're really really focused on doing yes sorry that was quite a big question i it was, it was more i've sort of got a general interest and i think sort of come back to the pandemic and you know in this past year 
it does. I mean, may, maybe I've just maybe I follow the wrong or the right people, but it doesn't feel like tax has been attacked in the same way that it has been before. There was a very negative attitude towards tax. And in the last year, it feels with, you know, such support for the NHS, such support for public institutions that I haven't seen those messages come out quite so strongly. And I wondered if, you know, we've we've got a slightly different attitude towards tax in this country because of the past year. Um, and if that then maybe kind of affects or, or might affect how tax needs to be dealt with, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. We're witnessing, I mean, we're in a really, really exciting moment, I think, for for sort of, A, what's happening in policy and also just just where the public are on, on issues such as such as progressive tax. So, you know, we did some polling and focus groups actually quite early on in the in the pandemic, um, which looked at public public attitudes towards tax. And we were already seeing really, really positive shifts. So I think I think it was in sort of um, June June 2020 and at, even at that point we saw three quarters of people want to see wealth tax more um, and this was sort of across both parties so two-thirds of conservative voters agreed that they want to see wealth tax more which is which is pretty pretty unthinkable even even a few years ago um, and similarly you know big upticks upticks in um in, in support for more tax on corporations that was another sort of really popular um popular tax measure and actually surprisingly a lot of people because often when people are asked about sort of taxing other people you know they're, they're, they're perhaps more supportive than if they feel like it might affect themselves which is you know perfectly understandable um, perhaps perhaps sort of part of part of things but actually what we were seeing is even um, you know half of conservative voters saying that they'd be willing to pay more tax themselves to fund public services so okay it's, it's half uh, of conservatives two-thirds of labor but that's actually still a fairly big jump in terms of people who would say immediately no no I need to pay more from my own pocket to actually fund fund public services so I think that that's a major shift and actually even though you know we did this we did that study fairly early on it's been it's been consistent with studies later so there was an Ipsos Murray piece in October and then um, this year Yonder did a, an analysis which showed for example um, that three quarters of people in the UK think that, that that our government should play a leading role in tackling corporate tax avoidance. So big, big numbers, big shifts in terms of how people both see tax in their own lives and also sort of demanding action from, from their governments. And I think it sort of makes sense. I mean, you know, everyone, everyone almost as a result of the pandemic has had some encounter now with, with state support, you know, whether it's through the furlough scheme or other ways of supporting people. And so I feel like in people's direct experience now, they they, they are much perhaps you know almost everyone has this sort of sense of of the, of the vital role that the public sector plays in our lives, and and so it sort of makes sense to me that as a result of that, people would sort of connect the dots and say, well, actually, you know, we do need to we do need to raise the money to make sure that we have strong strong public services and that we can you know, bounce back and recovery and so on. So I think the important thing is that we sort of capitalise on this moment, you know, that we, that, that politicians really seize these figures on public polling and, and really sort of take that wave of public support and try to make really bold and, and progressive change um, and hope that we don't sort of just, just return gradually back to the way that, the way that people perhaps view these sorts of things before, you know, where we just endlessly, endlessly cut taxes in the hope that that would spur investment, et cetera. Yeah, it, it, I know there was definitely a point last year, wasn't there, where the government was sort of promising that they wouldn't be raising tax in order to pay back pandemic costs, etc. And that seems to have disappeared a little bit. I don't know if maybe because it's inevitable that they might have to. But but I, I would suppose that things like this global, you know, global 
multinational uh, tax on big corporations. All these things, if people were seeing that the bigger companies are actually paying their bit, it would no doubt encourage people to want to pay more themselves. Uh, sure, you know, how much, I, I just wonder if, if um, I don't know if your, your poll shows, but, you know, how much does the unfairness affect how we as people view tax? Because it definitely feels a bit like, well, why do I have to pay if, say, Amazon aren't paying? You know, that, that's got to be quite a big factor into how people deal with it personally, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And like, I, I won't, I won't name names, but some of our sort of uh, comrades on the on the right wing of things have obviously, you know, spent a long time just campaigning to almost poke holes in the system, you know, because they absolutely know that, as you say, that if people feel that the tax system isn't can't be trusted, or that other people are sort of getting away with things perhaps that they might not be able to, then it really lessens overall trust in the system and overall willingness to to engage in it. So I think you're right that there's a really important theme here about um, sort of demonstrating that no matter which where you are in society or you know how wealthy you are etc that you you are required to sort of pay your fair share and contribute and and to sort of meet the rules that we all set through the democratic process you know this is this is a democratic process this people do put forward proposals for tax voters are able to vote for the parties that they prefer etc and you know it, it doesn't seem right on any measure then that some people are able to sort of just just opt out of it on the basis of the fact that they they have more resources than others so i, I really hope as yeah that, that if we if we can push some of these changes through that that would have um a wider effect of sort of in, increasing you know almost a virtuous circle of, of of improving trust and sort of increasing support for for, for tax measures Brilliant. Well, thank you, Tom. I had no idea that one of the most positive chats I'd have on this podcast in quite a while would be about tax. So I, I appreciate that. It's very, very exciting to know that there is something that has some promise, some area of politics that has some promise right now. Um, well, thank you for, for joining me again. And, and just one last question, which is what I ask all the guests on the show with the hope of just furthering good information, uh, which is that apart from yourself and Tax Justice UK, I just wondered what other uh, campaigns, people, sites um, that you'd recommend listeners sort of check out in terms of, I mean, I would say tax, but it doesn't have to just be about tax. Like who, are, who are the people that you go to for sort of political um, or economic commentary? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I should, you know, uh, shout out to some of my colleagues in the tax justice movement. Um, uh, it's a really sort of vibrant and active active space at the moment. Uh, so we've got the Tax Justice Network, who are our sort of sister organisation looking at... Um, looking at, I guess, the sort of international tax rules, whereas we're focused a bit more on the domestic. We've got the Fair Tax Foundation, who do a lot of amazing... Um, sort of commentary and analysis and we've got tax watch who are doing really interesting investigative journalism around around tax so i'd really really encourage people who are interested in in perhaps reading a bit more or hearing a bit more to to, to follow up with them and then there's the, the the sort of broader progressive left economy space um uh, and i i in particular follow the economic change unit who i'd encourage people to have a look at and there's a couple of think tanks um commonwealth and autonomy both of whom are doing Really, really interesting work to build a more progressive economy. Thanks to Tom for that surprisingly positive chat. I see, I told you it was, wasn't it? Really fascinating. Um, and you can find Tax Justice UK at taxjustice.uk or on their Twitter page at taxjusticeuk. Taxjusticeuk. That's harder to say out loud than I thought. Tax Justice UK and Tom's own Twitter is TBT Peters. Any other things I should be talking to peeps about? Any other peeps I should be talking things with? Uh, drop me a line like the fish I am at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could just write it on an unsold chilled British sausage and send it to me, but I worry it will just encourage a dog to chase a postman like in comics that never, ever get to me. 
So as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's it for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. But are you thinking, wait, it is not enough. I need even more. Well, then here is some good news for you. You can um, just start this episode again. Listen to it from the beginning. Yeah, deal with it. I'm not making extra shit. I've got other stuff to do. And a three-year-old who keeps asking me questions like if it's okay to stroke a wasp. However, um, if this show was indeed fulfilling without some director's cut that features all the burps I edit out, then please do recommend it to others. Give the show a nice review on a podcast place. And even throw one or two pounds at the Kofi Patreon or ACAR support site too. Thanks for that to Acast, my brother last sceptic and cat day. And this will be back next week when the British government will declare a full sausage war on the EU, when Johnson will say that Britain will sell no sausages at all to European countries and gets very upset when all of Europe doesn't give a single shit. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by Chill British Sausages. Only the most uncomfortably temperate sausages around, made with whatever falls into the machine, whether it be pig, hand or an accident on Bring Your Child to Work Day. We'll squish it up into an unrecognisable penis shape and send it to you no warmer than the front bench's hearts so you can gobble that Savloy with as little joy as possible. Chill British Sausages, because hot food's for people who like life. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.